This is an ABC podcast. I guess it's an existential question about this importance that we give to our DNA. And it made me think that, you know, maybe that's become the soul now. You know, maybe, maybe that's what people consider to be their soul in a way that all cultures have a have some kind of, you might say, narcissistic need to have uh, something special about them. That might be a soul or, a, or, or something else. But, but DNA, I think, has, has, has assumed, almost assumed that, mm. that special function in, in society. But is your DNA your own? Hi, Natasha Mitchell with you for Science Friction, Culture and Science with Extra Spice. Great to have your ears. Now, what if you got a call out of the blue? From a person in blue, the police detective is calling from a far-flung country to say that someone who might be related to you has committed a horrifying crime, right? A murder. It happened decades ago, and the relative isn't someone you've ever heard of either, not your sister or your uncle. It looks like they're probably a third or even a fourth cousin. So why is the detective contacting you? When you send off a cheek swab to one of those commercial ancestry companies to find out about your heritage, and perhaps you've done that, who gets access to that data? That's the question I'm asking bioethicist Andrew Crowden, Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Queensland, Dr Aideen McInerney-Leo, who's a genetics counsellor, geneticist and an NHMRC fellow at the University of Queensland, and Dennis McNevin, who's Professor of Forensic Genetics at the University of Technology, Sydney. They all joined me at the World Science Festival in Brisbane recently. So have you or would you send your DNA to an ancestry service? Here's Andrew. I think I would, but it would pro- maybe it would depend on the consent process that was connected to doing that test. But yeah, it's intuitively appealing to know about one's an- ancestry. So yes, I think I would. So you haven't done it yet? I have. Yes, oh, you I have. have? Yeah, yeah, oh yes. And did you get some surprises? Did you read the consent form right down to the very bottom of the fine print? I did, yeah. And then highlighted it and underlined yeah, highlighted, it? highlighted, underlined it and took it to a human research ethics committee and got a print. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't. I'm like everyone else. I just, I, I read it, but didn't read it in the fine detail probably. And did you mm. get some surprises? No, I don't think so. So you knew who you were already? I think so. <laughs> so why did I do it? I actually did it to experience the process. And I didn't have the, uh, the reticence that some people may have to doing that. And the good reasons why you need to be a little bit careful when you do that, particularly if you think about 23andMe, for example, giving access to a fairly major drug company to So 23andMe are a genetic online testing company. You can send off a swab to them and they'll send you back some data. They will, yeah. A swab, you you just fit in a tube, you send it away. Well, in the States, they gave access to Pfizer um, to some of that data. They said they did it with consent, but that may well have been a line in in that consent form. Yeah. We'll come back to that because it's interesting to know why Pfizer would be interested in my my genetic data as a big pharmaceutical company that makes Viagra. But we'll we'll, we'll It's in the States, of course. In Australia, you don't get... Well, you can get health results back, but you're only meant to get ancestry results in Australia. Okie dokie. Andrew, we place so much Mm -hmm. potent meaning in genetics now. 
don't we? More so than other information we might reveal about ourselves. What's special about this data? I think we do. I think people feel their DNA is what they are. Um, certainly getting a DNA ancestry picture or a health profile in certain situations would be an incredibly useful thing with correct counselling and correct analysis and expertise to work out the probabilities and even then, even the experts struggle at the edges, but people are not just their DNA. There's other things that are important to people's identity beyond this. People are calling at the moment for to, there to be a test in, here's this is controversial, a test in Australia for people's Aboriginality. Now that... Yes, well that was feeding that into of, a very particular yeah, milieu yeah, of that, politics at the moment. That's, that kind of is parallel to, I guess, an idea that um, we are our DNA and that you can actually identify whether a person is an Indigenous Australian, for example, by doing a DNA test. Now that's been universally rejected by a lot of scientists in this country, certainly rejected by Indigenous people, but... There are politicians in this country, politicians sitting in our parliament, calling out for something like that, which influences the media. And that's what people would call like a deterministic view about DNA. The fact is that people are more than at their DNA sample. Mm. You know, they're, they're even biologically, they're much more than that. You know, there's mm. RNA, there's epigenetics and all this other scientific stuff that people are. There's environment and experience that, that influence who we are. This sort of And ancestry. influences our genetics. There's a, there's a, and influences our genetics. I mean, there's this it constant does. interplay between yeah. Inch, what we eat and who we what are we do and our yeah. genetic expression. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So people's connection to land, to culture, wherever we're from in the world, is really significant. It's that sense of place, where people are from, as well as the environment and so on. So I think we're a bit over the top with um, DNA, but it is certainly a very, very interesting thing to think about. Hey, Dean, what about you? You're a genetic counsellor. You're yes. constantly navigating the intricacies of the data that people grapple with when they get a genetic test. They've got a gene. Yes. What decision do they make? Do they tell their siblings? Who do they tell in their families if something big is in their gene genome sequence? Would you do it? Have you done it? A genetic test for ancestry purposes or to send it off to look at your disease risk? I have not done it. Um, I'm Irish, so I think I'm probably <laughs> fairly boring in the ancestry scheme of things, so I imagine that report wouldn't be particularly diverse. Um, but the genetics, I, I have concerns about what happens to the data. Um, you do have the option, theoretically, of spitting in the tube, sending it off, and, and then telling them that you want them to destroy your sample and that you want them to destroy your data once that's done. But you pretty much need a PhD in IT to be able to figure out all the options of how to do that. So I have concerns about what trust. happens. Trust. Yeah, trust in the data. And trust is such a big part of this conversation, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think the, um, the other thing is the health data that comes out of it. You know, what's, what's the quality of it? What's the positive predictive value of it? I'm a kind of person where if you tell me I have an 8% risk of heart disease to begin with and then I go to a 10% risk of heart disease, that's not going to make a huge difference to me. But it personally. might make a difference to some people. But it might make a difference to some people. So that... so. I'm used to clinical genetic tests, which are very definitive and have a strong predictive value, and I put a lot of weight and store in those. Mm. But these kind of um, 
variation tests that can change over time depending on how large a population they're using, I uh, find less convincing. Mm. Mm. More to talk about there. Dennis, what about you? Would you do it? Have well, you done it? Yes, I have. So I've uh, submitted my, answer, my DNA to two companies. But I have to uh, admit there was a vested interest because I offer a genetic uh, ancestry service to police. So I wanted to see how did our product stack up against the competition. Lo and behold, yeah. we've got Dennis's Ooh, results. There it is. There it is. So this is from one of the companies. Or what he's prepared to reveal to you. <laughs> Just happened to have it lying around. Yeah. So as you can see, uh, my ancestry is probably much the same as Aideen's. I'm Anglo-Celtic. So you're 99%, 0.99.8% European, right down to 0.2% Sub-Saharan African. That's right. Now... Those small numbers I'm not so sure about. So my rule of thumb when I look at these genetic uh, ancestry results is anything less than 10%, take it with a grain of salt. Because you've got to remember that these, uh, the way that they predict your ancestry is that they compare your DNA to reference populations that have been collected over many years. So you're the prediction's only going to be as good as the library of, of, of reference populations that you're compared against, so, yeah. But wouldn't we all have a percentage sub-Saharan Africa by virtue of the fact that we're all homo sapiens? We, we do. Our ancestors, we, it's pretty well accepted now that our ancestors were all walked out of an, uh, Africa um, 150,000-odd years ago, but that's probably too far back. That's way too far back for us to be able to see that in our genomes. So we can really only see back a few generations because after that the DNA becomes diluted to an extent that you just can't see it. So it's really only you know two or three generations that we're going to see in these ancestry tests. So, so this test says that you're 73% Irish, Scottish, Welsh, 27% Great Britain and then it goes down into the migrations from Munster Island etc. Well, again, I mean, that sort of resolution, I think, is probably a little optimistic. I'm not sure that the tests are that good to be able to say, you know, exactly what village you came from. But, uh, you well, know, I think... Actually, I think it gets interesting into Munster. Apparently, we didn't go walk about a lot in Munster, because right? I'm from Munster. <laughs> and so apparently, we didn't go walk about a lot. So actually, you get a lot of diversity on the east coast of Ireland, because a lot of influences, and then it gets a lot more, um, less diverse, which I'm not sure is a good thing, genetically. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> so. Interesting. To Dennis, then, your work in the forensic sphere is revealing some interesting opportunities that forensic investigators are now accessing some of those databases in interesting ways. Before we get to that, explain to us how the forensic use of DNA evidence has changed as the technology has changed. So where have we come from and where have we come to? How useful is DNA evidence now? Yeah, well, has it been a really big shift? So DNA profiling began in the, in the 80s, yeah, there was a guy uh, called Alec Jeffries who found out that there's bits of DNA that are very different between us. And they're the bits that are important for identifying people because if, it, if you're only looking at DNA that's the same, it's not going to tell us whether it's an individual or a different individual. One, whether one, you committed the crime or, or I did. Or you did. Yeah, that's right. I'm sure it was you. Yeah, no, <laughs> uh, it was you. But, Actually, um, it was 18. <laughs> but, um, so that was the standard practice for, for 25 years. But about 10 years ago, people realised 
that there was more information in DNA. And this was particularly relevant when DNA, there's no match. So a DNA profile as in standard forensic practice is only useful if you can match it to someone. So if you find crime scene evidence and you get a blood stain or a saliva stain and you extract the DNA and you can match that profile to a suspect, then that suspect's got some questions to answer. You know, that suspect is associated with the crime. So that was the way it was done. But if you've got no match, and if, and if you search against a database and there's no match, then that's, that's, been, uh, that's a bit of a dead end. But what we've found is, well, there's other information in that DNA that might lead us to that suspect. So ancestry, for example. We now can tell police investigators where the person's parents and grandparents might have come from. We can tell, uh, we can predict uh, what you look like to a certain extent. And the one that's most easily predicted are pigmentation type traits, eye colour, hair colour, skin colour, because they're all pretty much the same genetic pathway. So this is forensic DNA phenotyping. Phenotyping. The phenotype being all our visible physical features as well, opposed to our genotype inside our cells. That's right. So the phenotype is everything the DNA codes for. It's basically what the code produces. It's like a computer program, you know. What, what the computer program does is your, is your phenotype. And one of the phenotypes that's useful for forensics, obviously, is what you look like, because you can issue, you can issue a, a description of that individual which might help you locate a, um, a suspect. So how much, is it just drill into that a bit further, so how is this being used? Like, what so, could you do, piece together an identity kit of some sort by well, that, using... Genome that's, sequencing. That's the holy grail. So, I mean, I'll paint a bit of a, 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 some might say, nightmare scenario. Some might say not. But let's imagine we find DNA at a crime scene. We uh, extract that DNA. We then um, produce a, what we call a molecular photo fit of that individual. Now, that might be a perfect description of that person's face, which we might then upload to uh, border crossings around the country if we've got a, a fugitive or a, or a suspect that we want to catch before they elude us. And CCTV pulls a face out of the crowd, matches it to the uh, description that's produced by the DNA. That person's pulled aside and a DNA sample is, is taken and, and matched to a, a crime scene sample. That's the sort of holy grail, if you like, of, of this kind of work. Is but how much specificity can we really take from our genome in terms of our appearance? Well. I mean, you just have to look at identical twins to see that most of our appearance is genetic. I mean, obviously, a lot of it is, is you can have identical twins. One might eat well, might, one might not eat well, and, and so that might change you know, their BMI, their body mass index, that sort of thing. But if you... I mean, we only have to look at identical twins. They're identical you know, in, in a lot of respects. They look very, very similar. And so a lot of what we look like must be genetic for that, for that reason. Right. So there's a translation that's got to go on, though, doesn't it? You know, I mean, yes. you can have the genetic information, but how do you track that on to, well, do they have high cheekbones? I mean, there's not that degree of specificity, well, surely. Many genes are involved in many different feet in, in one given feature. That's right. So it's, 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 a, it's a fanciful aim that we probably will approach, perhaps, but never get to. I mean, it's the same issue that Aideen was talking about, risks scores from DNA. You know, there's a lot of genes involved with craniofacial morphology. So even a simple phenotype like height that you would think would be easy to predict is actually very complex mm -hmm. and is under the influence of many hundreds, if not thousands of genes, each with a very, very small effect. So it's very hard to predict something like height. So, so what you look like is, is probably going to be even harder. So we were talking about um, ancestry databases and now forensic investigators have great interest in using 
existing databases of, you know, you've sent off, you've got your, your ancestry written down, it's all very exciting and you know your heritage. Forensic investigators have an interest in that information. So how is that information being accessed and utilised to solve cold cases, for example? Well, there's a great police interest in, in this, uh, especially in the United States. Genealogy has been used to, to solve cold cases, and, and um, uh, one of them is the Golden State Killer, and this involved a case where a serial rapist and murderer who had conducted a string of, of offences in the 1970s and 1980s had never been caught. But they, there was DNA that had been retained from that case, and it had resulted in no matches. No suspect had matched that DNA. There were no database hits. So what police investigators did was they enlisted the help of genealogists. They produced a, a new kind of DNA profile, the kind of microarray profile that Idine was talking about, where you survey many half a million genetic markers across the genome, and then you uh, provide that, which is, which is what, you, what happens when you provide your buckle swab to these ancestry companies, and they uploaded that to a, um, a clearinghouse for these genetic ancestry companies where you can swap profiles between these companies and upload them you know, on a common platform. And they uploaded this profile to this common platform. Of the suspect. Of the suspect. And they identified a third cousin or, or someone with a similar genetic relationship. And then they reconstructed the family tree of that individual back to their great, great, great grandparents. So they identified a common ancestor and then reconstructed the family trees of that common ancestor and identified hundreds of suspects. That and interviewed them all, or as well, many that they, were alive. They had to cull that list yeah. by looking at who was, some of them were dead, some of them lived overseas, some of them didn't live in the area where the crime was committed, some were female and they, they were sure that the, the, the um, offender was a male. Mm. And so by going through that process and, and culling suspects, they were able to narrow it down to a manageable number of suspects. Armed with that information, they covertly collected DNA from a suspect from something they threw out in the, in the garbage, uh, then matched that to the crime scene. They're, they got him. They got him, mm. yep, decades later. And that was simply because of the genealogy oh. opportunity. That's right. So that, but in that process, a number of you might have been dragged into that law enforcement investigation because and your potential cousins, suspects. Yeah, your cousins might have been in those family trees without your knowledge. Yeah, so let's, let's unpack that a little bit further. Andrew, what questions does that raise? Well, it's obviously a good thing to catch the Golden State killer, you know, and a serial killer. However, there's a few things along the line, and it, it's like with a lot of when we're talking about um, our own personal information, our own tissue, our own DNA, it does, I think, get back to the issue of consent. And facilitating a process at the source of collection where people are consenting to some of these possibilities. Now, that's kind of hard to do. Uh, we know about this now, and so we, we could do that. But if you think of, um, I guess, the, the, the more conservative medical research environment, 
that consent is gone through very, very carefully with samples. Not so much in the ancestry space, so it gets a bit hard to manage things. So what, you, what you're meaning is, would, would I give, do, do I then sign away consent to say that, yes, law enforcement agencies um, well, in every jurisdiction or in the jurisdiction within which well, I live well, let's think about can access my data? With consent, consent means being able to make, usually we think of making a substantially informed choice about what's going to happen to us. We're given information, we're meant to be competent to understand that information, mm. and then we're in a voluntary situation, we make an informed decision to give our sample or whatever. And that's kind of what's meant to be happening with that, with the ancestry. Certainly, generally we want, we want to consent and we want to know to what we're consenting. But consent can be verbal, it can be implied, it can be written, it can also be specific, that kind of, some, some people say fully informed, I say substantially informed, you know, you kind of know what's going to happen, it's very specific, but it can also be extended. And, Certainly, even in the highly regulated world of, of clinical research, a lot of people are, are giving their samples to go to be used in an extended consent. So, you know, it's a complicated, nuanced thing in the world of highly regulated research. But with this stuff and with what you're talking about, it's not. Dennis, you are interrogating the privacy, legal and privacy issues around forensic investigators mm. accessing these these ancestry records, aren't you? Because it raises a whole range of interesting questions. Sure. You know, one of the big issues, I think, is public trust. The cornerstone of, of, of the legal system is, is faith in the legal system. You know, you, you, everyone has to believe that the legal system is fair. Because if, if we lose that faith in the legal system, we've got problems. You know, we want to know that... Um, that if you've committed a crime, you go to jail. We want to know that if you're innocent of a crime, that you don't go to jail. And it's the same with genetic uh, forensic genealogy. We want to know that these uh, processes are being followed and that people are not being identified incorrectly. Now, in a forensic laboratory, there are lots of rigorous processes mostly employed to make sure that the DNA profile is error-free as much as it can be. As Andrew said, these processes are not in place with a lot of these genealogy service providers. And in fact, with the Golden State Killer, uh, it was really an amateur service. Jedmatch, the company that... Which is a which public open source so database. You can upload your, DN your genome up there. Run Everyone can see it. Retirees. Yeah, so, run by retirees. There yeah, you go. So it, it was yeah. really an amateur operation. I mean, you could argue that it's just a lead that uh, you know, you just, you're providing an investigative lead to police, but there are grave consequences for people who are incorrectly identified because the um, association, even though, that, even though you might have your name cleared after a case, I mean, being associated with a crime can sometimes take a long time to expunge from the online record. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so this is serious stuff. Yeah, um, so now I want to get even more sinister. I think w we, if, if a crime's there to be solved, we, most of us would, would like to see it solved, unless we actually committed the crime, in which case we, we're just a... Don't more, give yourself. We're a very bad person. <laughs> um, but let's look at state actors and when they get involved in our genomic data. So, Aideen, China right now is actively participating in genetic surveillance. What is it, what's happening, and why should we be worried? Okay, so in one state in China, right now they're offering a health check, a DNA health check, to which people are 
theoretically consenting, but there's a lot of peer pressure in order to participate if you want the free check. And they're particularly targeting a, a, an ethnic group within China that are Muslims, and they're wanting to get all of the genetic information that they can. And these are people who have been re-educated in camps in China. Gulag yes. camps, basically. Yes, exactly. This is an, an ethnic group that have been extremely exploited already. And um, and so, yes, now they're doing genomic profiling in this So it's population. not just peer pressure that's at work <clears throat> here. There's the Communist Party of China is applying the pressure. Well, the, uh, some people are just have being swabbed without any discussion and other people are being told if you don't agree to be swabbed we'll assume you have something to hide so yes so not by any stretch of the imagination informed consent as we would take it do we understand what's happening once their data is collected has anyone tracked what's happening next to those people well it's a little bit of a black box but we'd assume it's being used for policing I mean, the ultimate goal this is the thought right now is that this population is being used as a pilot and that the ultimate goal is that if there's any evidence left at a scene that you'll be able to just instantly do the GNA and figure out who did it straight away. And then put in place a eugenic plan that says this is how we will react to this population. We well, will violate their rights. Well, they're already being treated in that way. So they're, they're, their rights are already violated. So they're just even more vulnerable um, after this. So, yes. Let's come to Iceland because there's an example yeah. where a commercial company <coughs> is sequencing the genomes of a very large subset, large percentage of the population in Iceland. For what reason... And uh, what interesting questions have come up there? Yeah, so the Iceland situation is really interesting because that started a long time ago in the early 2000s, the early noughties. Basically, Icelandic people have always been interested in genealogy. It's like a big passion of theirs and three quarters of the population can show you how they tie into the rest of the population in, in a pedigree that blows the genetic counsellors' minds. But yeah, so they've always been interested in genealogy and the government decided if you could combine genealogy with health information and with genetic information, then you could, you know, potentially do a lot of good. So they passed a they passed this through the, the government, and the government then partnered with a private company called Decode. And so everybody was consented to participate. It was what we call a blanket consent to start with, which is basically you can do what you like with the sample, but there was the option of of giving back results at the end, which is important because very often that isn't an option. And down the track, of course, they started to find a lot of important information about these people such as, you know, genes for breast cancer and found mutations in those and the scientists are going, you know, we're obliged to give this information back and the government is saying, this is not what they consented for. This is not what they agreed to in the first place. What did they consent to? Because what an extraordinary process that a government partners with a commercial entity to genome sequence a great percentage of the population, and I've forgotten what the percentage is, but it's enormous. It's, yeah, I mean, of, of the adult population, it's like 80, 90%. I mean, it's like phenomenal. Incredible. Yeah. And so that information is getting put where for what purpose? 
So the, the purpose is kind of towards the understanding of health because the idea originally was because the Icelandic population was a little bit more geographically isolated, that you had a little bit more of a homogeneous background genetically. And so therefore you'd be able to tease apart more easily the genes involved in diabetes susceptibility or the genes involved in heart disease or the genes involved. So you'd be able to tease that apart with a lot more um, success than you would in a, in a big, messy genetic population like you, you'd have in the US or Australia. So or it was shared with researchers, was it? So shared with researchers, but it was a private company that, that partnered and originally. People consented and they for it. had, importantly, they had the monopoly on the data for the first 12 years the after that date. Decode the company. The decode the company. With what consequences? So with with the consequences that, you know, they thought originally, yay, hey, we're off to the races and we our price stock went up and all those kind of type things. They actually didn't manage to produce that much interesting science and facts out of it in a short period of time. They actually went bankrupt and then ended up getting bought up by a big um, biotechnology company. So this data is now owned by that and company. Now, yes, and now finally they're managing to produce some interesting papers on, on health in the Icelandic but population. But it's raised some interesting questions because embedded in that data, as you mentioned, is really vital health information. But Absolutely. the government said, no, you're not allowed to tell... Customers that so so there were, so it's a mixture of feelings. This kind of goes into rights. Basically, is it, is it your is it your right to know, or do you you have a right to know? And we believe in autonomy, where a person has the right to make a decision about their health and their and their um, uh, what's right for them. But on the flip side of the right to know is the right not to know. And so once you give somebody genetic information like that, they can't unlearn it. So the government was saying, you know, this is not what people have agreed to in the first place. We need to actually pull back. So what the decode have now done is said, give us another saliva sample on a research basis with this database and we'll go ahead and test you, especially for this one mutation in BRCA2 that's present in almost 1% of the population and confers a risk of breast cancer or cancer over the lifetime of about 80%. So I ask, were these profiles de-identified in, in Iceland? So they were coded. They were coded. They were coded. And yeah. so, Which means so they're all re-identifiable. Uh, right. And that's yeah. where you've got to come from when you're talking about genes, as you know. Yeah. It's all re-identifiable. You've yeah. got to consider it as eventually re-identifiable. Now, why is that significant? Are, is that because that means that it's not actually private? It might, it might be attributable to back to you at some point. Now, what's, well, why is that a problem? Well, it's your genetic code, so mm. it's, it can be attributed back to the individual who donated it. So that's, that's what does make it very special, and that's what we're saying, isn't it? And it needs to be considered in a special way. And for me, it's, you know how they used to say, turtles all the way down? It's choices all the way down. And populate good governance, meaning inclusive participation from the population. Now Iceland, I think a lot of people in Iceland are probably pretty much on board because Iceland say, sees itself as being at the forefront of genomics. You know, they've got Down syndrome pretty well out of the society. When women are choosing abortion and so on. And, and, and you know, they, they really embraced a society that's making choices based on genomic information. Which, which raises a whole and lot of questions. That's what we need. Though, that's what we, about we, the right many, to, many the questions. right to exist in the in the community of people living with disabilities. Exactly. The right to exist, thrive, survive, and yeah. contribute. Yeah. But, yeah. And the know, other end of this, of course, story. is gene editing, which we haven't gone to tonight. But you know, getting into that space and what and the decisions that 
that are being made about that and the decisions that we need to make about, and yes, testing and, and so on, but also okay. about actually editing people's genome is, they're profound questions. Absolutely they are. Yeah. When I've sat and interviewed people with, um, who have been born with congenital deafness and have rich, ripe, enlivened cultures and languages mm. and artistic forms and, 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 you know, their right to survive. And when we talk about genetics, it's, it's very confronting, you know, yeah. that they may not have been able to express all that in their lives yeah. uh, had they so had not... So my point is this, right. our society needs to, put, to, to implement the structures so that there is good regulation, there is good law where, ne where needed, and there's not just the medical space is regulated, but this space is as well. So coming back to mm. DECODE, where, where should we leave that example, Aideen? There's, I know there's some genetic counsellors in the audience this evening, and I think if they'd interviewed genetic counsellors at the start, we all would have said, y'all better think about the consequences, <laughs> because we would have seen this coming. And so, therefore, it's, you know, it's all consent, making sure people are informed at the start that they're not blindsided, and think before you spit, basically, is uh, my... Uh... Think before you spit. <laughs> it's a minefield isn't it? Yes. And uh, it's fabulously interesting and it's only going to get more interesting, uh, you know, this nexus between our biology and our rights and our right to privacy. Where is it taking us? Thank you so much for being here. Let me thank Andrew Crowden, Aidan McEnany-Leo and Dennis McNevin. Thank you so much for being here. And thanks to sound engineers Dave White and Matthew Crawford and to the World Science Festival Brisbane team for having us. Talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell and uh, tell your friends to subscribe to the Science Friction podcast while you're at it. You know they'll love it. And uh, a heads up, we have this fantastic residency at Radio National for Australian emerging scholars in either the sciences or the humanities. It's called Top 5 and uh, applications are now open. So there's 10 to apply for. Go for it. The top five science and humanities residencies at RN. It means you come and work with us for a couple of weeks and we learn a heap from you as well. So check it out, abc.net.au slash top five. Catch you later. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.